For the Los Angeles Review of Books, I'm Colin Marshall, coming to you from LARB headquarters in Silver Lake, Los Angeles. Many of you, no doubt by this point especially, now that it's won a Best Picture Academy Award, have found yourselves in the front row, or close to it, for the film Argo, a film directed by Ben Affleck, starring him as well, based on events in the 1979 Iranian Revolution, based specifically on the takeover of the embassy and the the word is exfiltration of six Americans who made their way to the homes of the Canadian ambassador and, and who were divided between two homes. Anyway, it's heavily dramatized in the film, Argo. You've probably seen it. You may have had a front row seat. But today we're talking to somebody who had a front row seat in real life for the actual events which we'll talk about how accurately they were depicted in Argo. Her name is Margot Lachlan White. She is the author of the book Waking Up in Tehran, the untold story of the Iranian Revolution. It's out June 1st. Margot, when did you first suspect this film might not treat these events accurately? Um, I think it was during the opening montage. Oh, right, right away. Yes. There was a very interesting uh, opening in which a voiceover presented a few specific events that were part of Iran's well-known history, one of which was the 1953 CIA coup that, uh, as the montage said, installed Reza Pahlavi. Well, actually... Reza Pahlavi was the Shah's father, who had been embarrassingly pro-Hitler during World War II, and the British found this a bit awkward and replaced him with his son, who was 22 at the time he took power in 1941. Mm. So what in fact was involved in the 53 coup was a reinstallation of Shah Mohammad Reza Pahlavi. And so that was a little bit of historical mishmash at the beginning um, and then there was a, a statement made about um, Iran saying this is the Persian Empire known today as Iran, and they showed a map from 500 BC. Mm. Well, the Persian Empire was quite large, particularly under Cyrus the Great, but Iran is quite different. Iran is not geographically equivalent to the Persian Empire. And whether people in some unconscious way would absorb the idea that Iran is today an empire, I don't know. But nonetheless, it was a very poorly articulated um, version of the reality and not true at all that Iran is any kind of empire. And then there were uh, a series of rather violent cartoons having neither historical relevance or even identification. But the images were of sort of random violence as well as a kind of buffooning of Iran or Iranians. And I think that set the tone for entertainment on the one hand, and Argo delivers beautifully on the level of entertainment. It's a well-crafted film. It's technically quite brilliant. There's what's called a lot of high production values in it. So as a movie, it's it's fun, it's mm-hmm. enjoyable, it's entertaining. But as history, it's extremely problematic, mm-hmm. and that's where I take issue with it. Now, throughout this conversation, I'm sure we can touch on the many points at which Argo plays fast and loose with the facts of history, but people are going to want to know, how, why were you in Iran? How did you get to Iran in the 1970s? What, what, uh, what, how far back do you go with, with the, the, the culture of that region? I became involved in Iran as a human rights observer, um, which was a voluntary 
position. I had no particular formal training in this. But I, um, I had met Iranian students first in Paris when I was studying at the Sorbonne. There's a place called the Cité Universitaire where all the foreign students live. Mm. So you become acquainted with people from all over the world. Mm. And Iranians were among the most articulate and historically informed, and they would tell you almost anything you want to know about their country. And I was fascinated by mm. what they told me, primarily because I had no idea of the level of U.S. involvement in Iran. I didn't know about the U.S. support for the Shah. I didn't know what the Shah was doing. I didn't never heard of Sabak before, the torture mm. organization. Um, so this was all new to me. When I returned to the U.S., I was living in New York. There were a lot of Iranian students in this country, about 60,000 of them. They were the largest contingent of foreign students in the country at that time. The reason being that the Shah spent all his money, his oil revenues, on military equipment, mm. American-made fighter bombers and so on, rather than on education. So there were not enough university positions for the number of students who wanted to go to university. Mm. So a lot of them came to the States, and they were political. They were anti-Shah. And during the 70s, there were a lot of people questioning why the U.S. was supporting a lot of dictators. Mm. Um, you know, there was uh, – Nicaragua was, was under dictatorship. Um, Somoza was hideous. Um, South, um, South Africa was under terrible straits. South Korea. All of these places were being run by U.S.-supported dictatorships. And it happened that unlike perhaps the cynicism that develops a little bit about political campaigns in this country, foreigners pay a lot of attention to American elections. Mm -hmm. And Jimmy Carter had run on a platform of human rights with the promise that he would incorporate human rights concerns as part of U.S. foreign policy. Mm -hmm. Believe it or not, people took this seriously. Iranians took it very seriously. Mm -hmm. And so there was a beginning of a kind of opening in Iran. People started taking chances in 1977. Remember, Carter was elected in 76. People started taking chances by writing letters to the newspapers, for example. This emerged first in the intelligentsia, the, the university faculty, writers, poets, artists, and so on, wrote letters to the main uh, national newspapers in Iran saying, could we please have some measure of freedom of press and speech here? And would you please release the thousands of political prisoners who are rotting in jail? He had had, you know, upwards of 12,000 to some said 40,000 prisoners in Iran. Nobody really knew the complete census. So, and this was at a time also when Amnesty International was trying to raise worldwide attention to the number of dictatorships in the world. And although they had a general rule not to rank dictators as worst, second worst, third worst. Mm. They broke their rule on Iran, and they said Savak was the worst secret police in the world, and their tortures were, quote, beyond belief, unquote. I think the, the president of Amnesty International himself had said that. So Iran was getting a lot of focus because it was heavily invested in by the United States. Uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski had referred to Iran as the geopolitical center of the universe, and it is, in fact, at the intersection of Africa, Asia, and Europe, which makes it not only as an oil power, but geographically located to be a major shipping port, to be, you know, extremely valuable real estate. Mm -hmm. So there was a validity to this. And as an imperial power, the United States took seriously who was in charge of Iran. 
It turned out that within Iran, there were other cracks developing in the Shah's regime, one of which had to do with the fact that oil prices, which had been skyrocketing rocketing through the early 70s, tanked in 1976. And with the drop in oil prices, the construction projects that the Shah had underway, mostly for huge office complexes involving headquarters for American and European companies and banks in downtown Tehran, simply halted. And granted, they had supplied a lot of jobs to people, but when the economy tanked, they were thrown out of work. The construction stopped. Well, a lot of these um, construction workers lived in shanty towns on the edge of Tehran. They lived in very poor conditions, and they were beginning to protest. Um, at the same time, the, because of the expectations about Carter's um, campaign for human rights, people started to openly demand release of the political prisoners. Well, in November of 1977, Carter, rather than beginning to lean on the Shah to open up his regime, in fact, invited him for a state visit to Washington. And he was very publicly greeted and hosted at the White House on November 15th, um, at which he toasted the Shah, commended him for his rulership, um, flattered him no end, and people were appalled. And there had been a huge, there was a huge protest at the time, mostly Iranian students who arrived in Washington, occupied Lafayette Park, peaceful demonstration. But in the middle of it, the, the two uh, buses arrived with guests for the Shah. Mm-hmm. So they unloaded right in front of the anti-Shah students, busloads of pro-Shah mm-hmm. people who'd been sort of paid to come there. They called them a rent-a-crowd. <laughs> anyway, I was there as a human rights observer just mm-hmm. to kind of watch what happened. There were phalanxes of, arm, of mounted police, Washington mm-hmm. Park Police, the city police were all uh, sort of surrounding the park. At any rate, they stood there and watched while this bus was unloaded, and guess what? A fight broke out. What a surprise. So the tear gas was then deployed at random at anyone moving, and the wind blew the tear gas, not at the students, but over towards the podium where the Shaw and Carter were trying to make a public statement of solidarity and support. Well, the photographers captured this image of the Shaw and Carter wiping tears from their eyes as a result of the tear gas. This was immediately broadcast and sent over to Iran by everybody. It was picked up in Iran. People were cheering. They thought this was a sign, you know, things were going to be different. It ignited a lot of sort of part humor, but part let's go for it. Mm -hmm. This is the time to protest. And one thing led to another, um, but I was asked, because of my willingness to listen to Iranians and learn about the history, um, which I had followed up with my own research at the Library of Congress, I went back through some, I don't know, 20 years of newspaper articles just to become more familiar with how the U.S. media had covered Iran, most of which was, you know, this benevolent monarch was the image that had been presented. Mm. And he was called an enlightened monarch, that he was modernizing Iran. Argo repeats this nonsense in the beginning of its opening statements, talking about westernization of Iran having been the key factor stimulating the revolution. Well, if you mean selling off the entire manufacturing apparatus of Iran to Western ownership, yes, that ticked off a lot of Iranian business people who owned their own companies and factories. The Shah sold Iran basically to the highest bidder. 
And in the process of accumulating billions in oil wealth, instead of spending it on social programs in Iran, improving the schools, building universities, and so on, he spent billions on amassing the fifth largest military arsenal in the world. Mm -hmm. Iran wasn't at war with anyone. But he had everything from acres of Cobra attack helicopters. All of the Pentagon's leftover inventory from Vietnam was sold to Iran. Henry Kissinger's policy during the Nixon administration had been sell him whatever he wants. It was a way of recycling all the petrodollars. The oil money went into the Defense Department, um, buying all the weapons that were no longer needed for Vietnam. So uh, why the Shah wanted this was anybody's guess, but he amassed this enormous arsenal of U.S. weapons. In order to service the weapons and the equipment, he imported U.S. military advisors. So there were 50,000 American advisors in Iran by 1979. And these people were living primarily in Isfahan, Shiraz, and a lot of them in Tehran. Um, they were, in fact, also exempt from U.S. law, thanks to, a, thanks to a statute that was passed in the 60s. I mean, they were exempt from Iranian law. They could murder, rape, pillage, whatever they wanted, and they could not be touched by Iranian law. So there was a lot of built-up resentment towards this. And the point I'm making is that that phenomenon of a tipping point applies very much to the situation. There had been all these sort of little insults and big insults over time. And when Carter and the Shah had this public meeting after... Carter had come out for human rights, it was the height of hypocrisy. It was a real blow to a lot of the liberal movement in Iran. I was asked to go because I had expressed an interest in knowing about Iran because I'd spent the time to listen to them and I could get off from work. <laughs> yes, important as well. Yes, I was working for a small magazine and my mm. boss said, sure, take the time. Mm. So I traveled to Iran in late 1977 and the reason was that on top of this state visit in Washington, Carter was going to spend New Year's Eve with the Shah in Tehran, another blow to people. And so I was set up with interviews. Um, the Iranian student movement in this country called the Confederation of Iranian Students, National Union called CISNU, was a worldwide organization which had achieved a lot of respect in Europe and the United States and even in Asia for being a peaceful protesting, consistently anti-Shah, pro-human rights organization, well-informed, educated, articulate, and so on. And so they asked me to go to Iran and meet some of the people who were speaking out. So I met some of their writers who had just been released from prison. I met some of the nationalists, the National Front people like Sanjabi and Furuhar and Bakhtiar and others who later became part of an interim government. Um, and I met a lot of the former political prisoners who had been in the jails. I met Mojahedin, who was a mm. decent organization at the time. I have some concerns about them these days. Mm. But at any rate, um, so I met a lot of people in the opposition. And when I came back, I gave talks about what I had learned. Every single person I met said, we cannot take this anymore. Savak is beyond belief. The Shah is impossible. He's corrupt. He's absolutely degenerate. Nobody can tolerate this anymore. He lives in these lavish palaces. He's soaking up all the money. He's wasting it on a military we don't need. We haven't got schools. We haven't got paved roads. Our people are starving. We're out of work. He's got to go. That was the consistent refrain everywhere. Mm -hmm. So 
I came back with that and gave talks about it. And after the uprising started happening in Iran in 78, triggered in large measure by these insults over Carter's very ill-phrased praise for the Shah, he called him an island of stability in the middle of a troubled region, which was in effect a commendation for Savak, which was, you know, the one torturing anybody who didn't like what was going on. So all of this hypocrisy angered people, and specific incidents also triggered the uprisings that occurred. And the first ones were shot at, people were killed. And because there is a tradition in Islam for mourning uh, people 40 days after their death, it was a way to, in effect, publicize a future protest without having to actually pass around any leaflets. Um, another point to be made about the role of Islam in this is that people could gather in mosques where they couldn't gather easily at university campuses because the campuses were saturated with savak and people would be arrested. There was a law on the books that said any gathering of more than three people could be grounds for arrest Mm -hmm. under the Shah. But if you were at a mosque, there was no such rule. So it was safe to have political meetings in the mosques. It didn't mean that the mullahs were running anything. When I went back to Iran in uh, June of 1978, in the middle of the uh, uprisings of 78, it was partly to find out what more was going on, but also to find out whether the media report of Khomeini as the leader was really valid, because what I was hearing from the Iranians in the States, from the Confederation, was shock and surprise, frankly, that the Ayatollah Khomeini was considered the leader of this. So, In going back to Iran, the purpose was to ask as wide a sector of people as I could bump into. Um, And again, because of the Confederation's wide um, social background, they came from all over Iran. They were from families whose parents worked in the bazaar, people whose parents were university professors, shopkeepers, whatever. So I was able to be put in touch with the head judge of their human rights court. They actually had one. He's actually still alive. He's 96 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, these National Front people, um, student protesters, and I just rambled around on my own and met people. Mm. And one of the people I met, um, who was actually driving his father's taxi at the time, um, was an engineer uh, who was living in South Tehran, which is a, a sort of a separate city from North Tehran. The Argo... Um, photography for the most part until it goes into the bazaar towards the end of the film or the middle of the film. The embassy personnel and wealthy Iranians lived in North Tehran. It's a very significant difference in terms of housing and um, shops and so on than South Tehran, which is um, a working-class district by and large. And um, so I was taken into South Tehran I was introduced to the traditional culture. I was in, I was taken to a wedding, visited people there. I met former political prisoners, um, and I had interviews with the same people I had met before. I met um, um, Mossadegh's grandson, for example, who led an organization called um, the National Democratic Front, which was somewhat different from the Democrat from the National Front. It was more liberal, more progressive. 
And um, Mateen Daftari, Hedayat Mateen Daftari was his name. He was Mossadegh's grandson. He had a wide circle of um, of acquaintances and a lot of respect as a lawyer, a human rights lawyer himself, constitutional lawyer. And I had several meetings with him. He described the situation as utterly untenable. He said, it's going to keep going. There's no stopping this. I met with a woman named Homa Natek, who was a professor at Tehran University. She's now a professor at the Sorbonne, having had to leave Tehran. Martin Deftery had to leave as well. Um, and she said the same thing. She said, this cannot be stopped. What everyone told me, however, was that, one, there is no leader. This is being self-led. People are organizing themselves. There's no leader. There's no party leading this. And, in fact, when the whole thing was done, the statistics were that Iran's revolution eventually involved a higher percentage of the population going up against state power than any country in history, more than the French Revolution, the Russian Revolution, or the American Revolution. Mm. 75% of the population ended up in the streets against the Shah by the end of it. I interviewed a lot of these people. None of them said Khomeini was the leader. They said they weren't sure what was going on with him being brought from his exile in Iraq to Paris, but no one else had been given a microphone, so of course everyone was interviewing him. And part of what emerged during that period, um, which is also why um, Argo's claims to not having had any CIA in Iran are laughable at best, is that there were CIA attached to Khomeini, as there had been to the Shah. And during Argo, there's a scene in which uh, supposedly takes place at the CIA when Tony Mendez's boss, whose name in the screenplay is O'Donnell, but I'm not sure he's ever actually named in the film itself. He says something like, we had three CIA at the embassy and none of them saw a revolution coming. Well, he's speaking in 1980 when it was true there were only three CIA in the, the embassy, after the Shah was overthrown. Before the Shah was overthrown, there were these forty-five to 60,000 American military advisors, many of whom were CIA. There was a huge contingent from Halliburton that built the pipeline infrastructure for the oil wells, also embedded with CIA. There was a huge contingent from... Um, another company that had built uh, the Savak infrastructure... Uh, and most of the um, telephone equipment that bugged all the phones in Iran. And these were all embedded with CIA, as well as having CIA advisors in and around the Shah. Mm -hmm. So they were loaded up with CIA. I don't know the count. They don't announce themselves. They don't wear badges. Um, But there were plenty of CIA in Iran. The fact that they couldn't predict the revolution, I mean, when I was there, it was very clear. Everybody said so. This won't stop. Yes, there's going to be a revolution. We have to get rid of him. The reason they didn't know this is because they talked to their own. Mm. They talked to CIA. CIA talked to Savak. Mm. Savak, whose job it was to protect the Shah, is not going to say, oh, no, actually, he's in trouble. We can't do our job. Mm. They're not going to say that. So they talked to their own people. They never got outside the embassy compound, as far as I can tell, or their corporate headquarters. Um, They didn't talk to ordinary Iranians. So, of course, they wouldn't understand what was on their minds. 
So what seemed obvious to me, and I I gave a talk in, I think, Houston, Texas, in, um, God, December of 1977, and again in 78, in the middle of 78, and the biggest uprisings occurred in September, October, November, December of 78. The Shah was gone by January 79. So this guy walking around saying we had only three CIA in Iran is ridiculous. Um, that's one of many uh, falsehoods. There's another issue that comes up in Argo, which Jimmy Carter narrates on the portion of the DVD that includes this commentary. The idea of the embassy takeover is grossly distorted in the movie. It's almost barely touched on why the embassy was taken. It turned out that the entry of the Shah into the United States in July of 1979, um, or actually was brought in in October, but it had been talked about since July, and that was evident from embassy cables. I have a few of them here with me. Um, The embassy seizure was motivated by the fact that the Shah had been brought into the United States. But one of the issues around that several issues. There were about four or five agendas operating in the embassy by the time it was done. The students themselves wanted to make a protest about the Shah being brought into the States. That's true. But they also had an issue with the people surrounding Ayatollah Khomeini. Their issue was the CIA connections around him. So they were both protesting. They weren't primarily protesting the 1953 coup, they were also protesting the current situation, which was CIA-embedded. And the particular link to the CIA was Ibrahim Yazdi, one of, of uh, Khomeini's senior advisors. He'd been living in Texas during most of his life. He had his best friend was Richard Cottom, a CIA operative from the 53 coup, whose job it had been to write articles defaming Mossadegh, saying he was a communist and a socialist, which he wasn't. His job in 79, in 78, 79, had been to write articles about Ayatollah Khomeini, portraying him as a supporter of civil liberties. He was going to. This is the line that came out of Paris when Khomeini was sitting there being interviewed by Le Monde and and uh, the Manchester Guardian, whoever. Um, New York Times reprinted articles. There was one written by Richard Falk from Princeton, even as late as February 1979, calling the Khomeini. Nobody should worry because he's got his key appointees are moderates. I don't know if you're aware of this moderate in any newspaper article in the New York Times because code for pro-U.S. <laughs> um, but at any rate, they said, don't worry. He's going to be reasonable. He's going to go to Gome. He's not going to do anything. Don't be bothered about it. It's not, not radical at all. And the fact was they knew very well that Khomeini would be the only piece of it that could keep people from actually having a democratic system in Iran because they didn't want a democratic system in Iran. Mm. And they didn't want some of the secular leaders because that would produce a really open environment in which, God forbid, somebody should suggest they really run the country for themselves. Mm. So Khomeini, because he had... Oh, this was the other thing about the embassy seizure. Sorry this jumps back and forth, but it's it's kind of a web. Mm. And so it tempts going back and forth because that's how it's connected. Um, The students were also aware that in 1953, a major role supporting the CIA had been played by, guess who, the Ayatollahs. Mm. The Ayatollahs and the clergy are not 
social democrats. They're not even democrats. They're not anywhere near liberals. They are right-wingers. They are pro-authority. They are reactionary in many cases, with some few exceptions, one of whom was killed in early 1979, very progressive Ayatollah, um, named Talarani. But most of them, for the most part, are quite conservative and reactionary, and they had supported the CIA coup. The students wanted to expose the danger of the same dynamic occurring in the new regime, and they thought, perhaps naively, some of them, that Khomeini didn't realize this. Mm. So part of their uh, interest in capturing the embassy was to find documents. They were not interested in keeping hostages. They, in fact, planned it for a day or two, and the reason I know this is that at the time when they were being maligned in the press and criticized for what they had done, called terrorists and so on, I gave a, I was asked to give a press conference. I used to go down to the front of the embassy and talk to the journalists who had really very little briefing on Iran before they were sent into Tehran. Most of them were quite ignorant of the U.S. history in Iran. And they were sent in, I think, partly so that their coverage would be fairly shallow. But at any rate, they were very nice guys, and they said, kept asking questions, and I would tell them a lot of the history. And some were from Sweden or France or Canada, whatever. And finally, they said, why don't you give a press conference? Just give us the whole background and do a briefing, and we'll just all take it, and we'll, you know, we'll take notes, and we'll print it. So I hesitated for a bit, but I said, well, okay. This was about three weeks after the takeover. This is a, I'm showing you a newspaper article that was the result of this. Mm. Um, so I prepared a statement in which I tried to clarify that the students had issues with continued U.S. and CIA presence in Iran and that they were concerned to um, make this public because they were not in favor of having a repeat of their country being colonized by foreign powers. And so I read the statement and you know, people asked a lot of questions and the following day, um, I got a phone call from the Ministry of Guidance, the same ministry that okayed Argo's permit to film in the bazaar. Um, but at any rate, they said, you've been asked to uh, visit the embassy. And I was very puzzled. I didn't understand this, so I asked, what did they want? And he said, well, I think they just want to thank you for your press conference. Mm -hmm. And so I agreed to meet with them. And I met with about a dozen, a couple dozen of them over tea. Um, Mary introduced herself as Mary, and I introduced myself as Mariam because I had used a fake name during my interview. The reason being that I had just recently gotten married to the engineer that I met on one of my trips. <laughs> And I didn't want to embarrass my in-laws. Yes, of course. <laughs> they were from South Tehran, and they were vehement pro-Homeini supporters, and I really didn't want to embarrass them. So um, I also didn't want to embarrass my own parents back in New York. So I, I said my name was Mariam Kazemi. I got the name out of a newspaper, I don't know, three minutes before the interview. Mm -hmm. But at any rate, I said, my name's Mariam. She said, my name's Mary, and we both sort of laughed. Um, she was very sweet, very polite, um, Whatever her image was in the U.S., I found quite different. She was very soft-spoken. The students, far from being terrorists, seemed quite shy and bashful. They were not armed. 
In fact, one of the other criticisms I have of Argo is there's a, a scene showing them with um, submachine guns, assault rifles. They were not armed, and the students who had a meeting beforehand and explicitly made the decision not to carry weapons. They had bolt cutters, period, full stop. Subsequently, what I found out was that other people had come in and sort of taken over the takeover. Mm. And while I was meeting with the students, there were some whispered comments made to me by one of the students about traitors inside. And I didn't really have any context to put that in, so I wasn't sure what he was referring to. Um, I was in and out of there within maybe 15, 20 minutes. It was a very quick kind of visit. Um, and they basically just said thank you for, you know, at least not slandering us and for saying why we took the embassy. And when I went outside, I was kind of bombarded again by the press, and they wanted to know if I had demanded the release of the hostages. And I said, no, that was none of my business, frankly. I don't work for the government. It's not my, you know, concern. I don't have that kind of issue. And they said, well, did they, did you ask to see the hostages? I said, no. And they said, well, wouldn't they let you? And I said, I didn't ask. And then they said, well, why did they bring you there? I said, well, I had tea. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So at any rate, um, the basic second agenda, that was their first agenda, was they wanted to caution Khomeini about the CIA in uh, his entourage. And so they were trying to find documents that um, supported that. They had wanted, what one of them told me as he was taking me outside afterwards, was this is not about cancer, meaning the Shah being admitted to the United States for cancer treatment. This is about Chase. I didn't know what he was talking about. He also said, we wanted documents, not hostages. We intended two or three days. He said, it's out of our hands now. Well, I didn't know what any of this meant until like weeks later. What he meant was that a second contingent had actually arrived at the takeover and taken it over. Secondly, Khomeini had not supported it. He hadn't even known about it beforehand. But he saw how popular it was. And like any politician, he decided to use it. So he then sent his support. The students said they're going to, told him they were going to release the hostages after two or three days. He said, no, don't do that. Hold on to them. He then used it to maximum effect. Meanwhile, in the United States, the Republicans, Reagan and Bush, who were trying to win the White House in the following election, uh, 1980 was an election year, saw how they could use it. And they started scheming, which I didn't know anything about at the time, to keep it going. And what I discovered subsequently in Tehran, again by accident, was in September of 1980, when I got another call from the Ministry of Guidance to the effect that there was an American journalist who wanted to meet with me. Well, by that time, between the, the embassy takeover, the um, hostage rescue in January, and Carter's failed rescue attempt in March, which had crashed and burned in the desert outside Tehran, famously, um, all the American journalists have been taken out of Iran. So there were none left. So I was very puzzled about how a journalist was now in Iran. Well, he turned out, it was, it was something straight out of a B movie from the 1940s. This guy shows up with a 
gray trench coat on and one of those Humphrey Bogart hats, you know. And I just, I mean, I laughed, you know. I brought my brother-in-law with me um, because he was actually one of the Revolutionary Guards. He's kind of a hotshot 25-year-old with a a weapon, but a nice guy. (laughs) Um, Otherwise, I wouldn't have wanted to have too much to do with the Revolutionary Guard, but never mind. They were a mixed bunch, you know. Mm. They weren't all as they're portrayed. But anyway, so I took him with me. And I said, you know, don't do anything. Just sort of sit there, but have your gun sort of visible, you know, just sit there. I didn't know what I was doing. But anyway, I thought this was all peculiar. This guy said to me, leaned across the table, and he says, you have the power to get inside the embassy. Mm -hmm. And I said, excuse me? (laughs) This went on for, you know, a good 10, 15 minutes. He kept trying to convince me that I could persuade the students to let a film crew into the embassy. This didn't have, I'm convinced this didn't have anything to do with Argo. It turned out, after much sort of umming and awing, this guy admitted to being from Texas and working for Bush. Mm. And my theory was they were already trying to figure out how to get some leverage inside the embassy to make it last longer than just a few weeks because they wanted to get it to sink Carter that extended that long. But nonetheless, I didn't know anything more about this until September when I got another call saying somebody wanted to meet me, and it was the Ayatollah's grandson. I didn't even know he had grandsons. But it turned out he did, a fellow named Hossein, who at that time was 20, 22 years old. And he wanted to meet me, so I went back to the same place where I'd done all these interviews with other people, and we had tea. He had one thing on his mind. He leaned across the table and he said, we're very interested in your elections. And I said, oh, um, he said, yes, we don't like Carter. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> um, notice that. He said, could Carter win the elections if the hostages are still in captivity? And he kept asking this, and I ummed and I awed and I evaded it, and I didn't want to answer him, and finally he pushed and pushed, and I said, no, of course not. And afterwards I realized when the elections were, in fact, tanked, because the hostages were, in fact, still in Iran, what had happened. And in fact, Carter had negotiated a settlement by September. So it was a done deal. And the government of Iran had agreed to release them. And then they sabotaged it. The Ayatollah's family literally sabotaged it because they wanted the Republicans in power. They didn't like Carter. And one of the reasons they didn't like Carter was when he came into office, he had stopped the bribes that had traditionally been paid to the Ayatollahs for staying loyal to the Shah. And for being quiet about their role in the CIA coup in 53, they had been bribed by the CIA for years. So Carter, in his somewhat naive views, oh, we don't do that. Well, actually, the U.S. does do that all the time. But Carter didn't want to, to his credit. So he stopped the bribes, which ticked off the Ayatollahs. Um, They had other reasons for not liking him. But at any rate, they wanted the Republicans in power because they could get a lot of weapons deals from the Republicans. And they wanted to continue the arsenal mm-hmm. in Iran. So that election was rigged, um, and the Ayatollah's family participated in it. Meanwhile, there was another agenda operating at the embassy, which involved Chase Manhattan Bank, as I later learned. And it was, in fact, <laughs> Henry Kissinger and... David Rockefeller, chairman of Chase Manhattan Bank, who had persuaded Carter against his better judgment to allow Carter uh, to allow the Shah into the United States supposedly for cancer treatment. 
Well, a lot of the newspaper articles at the time said alternately he had jaundice or malaria or some form of lymphoma, all of which are treatable both in Mexico, Puerto Rico, you know, Egypt, for heaven's sakes, you can get a treatment for any of these things anywhere. So why he had to be brought into the States is unclear. That's what came clear later. Carter repeats that mythology in Argo. In the commentary, he says, I was told that the Shah couldn't get any other treatment other than in New York for his lymphoma. Well, please, President Carter, with all due respect, you know, you didn't have Google then, but you certainly could have, you know, plenty of even the Rockefeller's own physician who was sent to evaluate the Shah's health. Even he said, yes, you can get it treated anywhere. Um, But nonetheless, it was an excuse. It was a pretext. And there's a cable between the Chargé d'Affaires in Tehran at the embassy, Bruce Langan and Carter saying, in effect, I guess a health excuse would make us look better. But he didn't think it was a good idea. And it did provide a pretext for taking the embassy. But it turned out that Chase Manhattan Bank wanted a pretext for seizing Iran's assets on deposit at Chase Manhattan Bank, which were billions of dollars. Mm -hmm. And the excuse would be a national incident in which U.S. property was seized or damaged in some way. So they knew that there was some underlying uh, scheme in, in Tehran. They had a lot of agents in Tehran. This is what... The notion of Argo, no CIA agents still working in Iran is nonsense. They had them all over the place. They were crawling all over Tehran, um, Richard Cotton being one of them. But there was uh, there was always a way to find out what was going on. The place leaked like a sieve. Um, in a revolution, everything opens up, whether they want to or not. And the good, bad, and the ugly is all over the place. And so you can find out almost anything. You just hang around. People gossip in the corridors. Somebody's got an uncle who works in the ministry of yada yada, and they pass things around like cookies. It's a challenge to sort out what's fact from what's just rumor, but you can hear an awful lot. And so the idea that somebody at Chase Manhattan Bank who had agents all over Tehran and had people working with Marquesee, which was their sister bank in Tehran, wouldn't know that the embassy was being planned as a takeover. You know, that's quite plausible. At any rate, their motive was to have a seizure of the embassy in order to create an international incident, which would allow them legally, under banking statutes, to seize Iran's assets at the bank. And the reason Rockefeller wanted this was that when the oil prices had tanked in 76, he had loaned the Shah billions of dollars Mm -hmm. so that he could then buy all those things he was buying from U.S. Defense Department. So at any rate, they wanted their money back. Rockefeller wanted his money back. And the only way he could take it out of the assets, out of the bank accounts, was to seize the assets. Mm -hmm. And so that was done by by November 14th. They particularly wanted it done in November. Mm -hmm. So all these competing agendas were operating in the embassy seizure. It's no wonder Argo didn't want to touch it. You know, (laughs) it's another like a four-hour film. Yes, yes. (laughs) It's. I want to hear a little bit more about you know when you first met Iranians in Paris and in, in New York, how, how readily would they express their, their frustration with the, the regime of their homeland? And, and how much of an indication would they give that soon people may be changing things? Extremely open mm-hmm. about the regime. Um, it may have been that I was overly connected to people who were anti-Shaw. Mm-hmm. I think that's likely. Um, pro-Shah people didn't leave until later. 
after the Shah was overthrown, so there weren't many of those students. But I did hear about it. I listened. Um, and as I said, I could get off from work. And so when somebody suggested going, um, I think it fit with my sort of desire to be a part of something that mattered mm. in life. Um, I put this in my book that that part of what motivated me was that I had never wanted to be one of those people who had only second or third hand knowledge of the world. And I'd long ago become fairly skeptical about the US media. It hadn't persuaded me that it was particularly accurate. I had traveled, I'd lived abroad, I'd been a year in London as a teenager, and then I went to Paris, was a very open, politically dynamic place. Mm. And around foreign students, you learn about the world, and you learn about your own country when you leave it, ironically. Mm. And so I learned a lot about what the U.S. was doing abroad from being abroad. And uh, I was shocked, I was horrified, I was, you know, alienated. And it was... um, a period of time when, as I said, a lot of these things were in the news. A lot of these dictatorships were kind of under siege. And world economic patterns do create turmoil because they create tremendous unemployment. People are thrown out of work. They get angry. They go in the streets. So when there's a regime to complain about, economics becomes politics. You know, mm-hmm. it's kind of part of the way it works. Mm-hmm. So I was just open to it. And given everything you learned about Iran before going, when you did turn up as a human rights watcher, what was the feeling of, of actually getting there, of actually being in that country then, in, in, the, in the pre-revolution days? Um, I, you mean, was I nervous about well, it? Well, I, I-, I want to know what you were about it. Uh, it's, I mean, in any situation, you go to a country for the first time, you've learned something about it, perhaps a lot about it, but then you have to integrate that knowledge with the reality of being there. And I imagine that was especially true uh, and, and perhaps especially complicated in Iran of that time. Mm-hmm. I think in many ways it was a, a circumstance of timing that mm. is hard to explain. Um, things do tend to come together, as I said. And when... They were opening up in Iran. There weren't a lot of Americans who cheered for the Iranian students who were protesting the Shah. You know, most of the time they got annoyed. They would see these protests and just say, why don't you go back where you came from? And the fact was they couldn't go home. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was a level, low level of American awareness about a lot of this, and I just was much more open to it and, and perhaps curious and interested. Um, and... I don't know, maybe because I was born in Canada, I was more open to I don't know. <laughs> um, I had been, as a kid, I went to the Martin Luther King civil rights protest. I was raised mm-hmm. in North Carolina. So I had already opened up about a lot of political issues. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I wanted to be useful. That was something perhaps in my personality. Mm-hmm. And it seemed to me a worthwhile thing to do. Um, I'm a good listener. I'm a good interviewer. Um, I wasn't paid for it. But I found these people so articulate, so well-informed, and so earnest. And and the details they provided were graphic. And through the engineer who I later married, I w- was sat down with two former political prisoners who gave me the details of the torture they had undergone. Mm. It was staggering, you know? And so you begin to realize the proportions, the dimensions of this 
which in many ways, if you live in the United States in a fairly insulated, isolated culture, you cannot imagine. So you have to go there to some extent. And I was just willing to do it. I was really fascinated. I was captivated by it. And it, it angered me that I had been lied to about all this. I don't like being lied to. Another personality quirk. Um, I find it offensive that the United States pretends to be one thing and in fact upholds another. I was outraged by that. All of those things were part of what motivated me. I wanted to find out for myself what was happening. Um, and I wanted to speak about it. I wanted to wake up Americans about this. So I guess I was motivated in that way. When did you know that you would you would have a relationship with Iran that would go beyond you being a human rights watcher there? When did you realize this was this was going to be a longer-term engagement with this country? Oh, good question. Well, I did go back in 79 just for a visit. That was my intention. All of my friends had gone back after the Shah was overthrown. So I went back to visit them. I didn't intend to stay. But one thing led to another. Um, there had been a huge protest on Women's Day in March when the Shah had basically said, okay, everybody back to the kitchen and um, women judges can get off the bench and lawyers should go back and be secretaries and so on, and women should wear the hijab. And so there were. And then there was a protest on May 1st. I got there in April. There was a protest on May 1st. There were four May Day demonstrations. The Islamists had one. They didn't know what to do because it wasn't exactly their holiday. Um, there was a protest by the Tudor Party, which was kind of pro-Soviet. There was one by other leftists, and there was one by a sort of motley liberal crowd. But there was an, another demonstration in August. That sh- Khomeini started shutting down newspapers. And I was still there in August. I had a three-month visa. And during that protest, there was a, just an enormous crowd. Ayan was at the last remaining full-time daily newspaper in Tehran. Um, the regime had already shut down a lot of the papers that had sprung up during the revolution. Anybody who had a memeo machine had a newsletter <laughs> or a newspaper. And these were people who hadn't had freedom of speech in 35, 40 years. So anybody who had anything to say was on a soapbox, was on a, you know, up on a platform, speaking out, a street corner, leafleting, talking. They were in a riot of First Amendment kind of things, you know, because they'd never had one. So... In that period of time, when a major national daily was shut down, it was big news. It was a huge blow. These smaller ones, yes, people protested, but they couldn't do much on their own. But for Ayan Dagan, it would be the equivalent of shutting down the New York Times or the LA Times. So thousands of people, tens of thousands of people hit the streets. And we were attacked. There were there were um, revolutionary guards or thugs, we called them, just the random crowds of people were paid to attack the demonstrators. They threw rocks at us and bottles at us, and then they shot at us, which was a little more serious. So from then, um, that was one that I went to with my future husband. And we spent a lot of time together, and gradually I fell in love with him. And it was when my visa ran out (laughs) that I had to make a decision. And so I decided, okay, I'll do one more three-month thingy. So I went to Ankara, which was the nearest place to get a visa stamped. Same place that in Argo, I guess, um, Tony Mendez got his Mm -hmm. visa stamped. 
Um, at any rate, so I flew to Istanbul. I spent a day. I went to the embassy, got my visa stamped, and went back to to Tehran. And I stayed another three months, during which time the embassy was seized. I fell in love. I got married. I was there. So yes. that sort of did it. I think, you know, there are times in life when you don't exactly know what you're doing, but you're in a situation, and when it's as dramatic and unique as that period was in Iran's history and U.S. history, it's compelling. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I had an interest in the issues, and there I was in the middle of it, and I sort of kept getting drawn more and more deeply into it without thinking through where it was going, frankly. (laughs) (laughs) So doing a press conference in the middle of it had not been my life plan. Mm, No doubt. There I was. Now, Argo will bring Iran back to the minds of of many Americans who watch it, but thinking of Iran now, I think more of the filmmakers I like from there, or certain certain cultural elements. You know, to to me, the, the idea of an enemy is not number one in, in my mind. You know what? What do you what do you see given given the reflection you've done on Iran writing this book, given all you have gone through there in that country, and given the Iranians that you know and that you've been talking to for so long? What do you what do you make of the country today? How how do you think of how do you conceive to yourself of the state of Iran in in, in the twenty first century? I'm going to make a generalized uh, sort of a generalization about politics. I think it's no secret that to stay in power, almost any government invents or creates an enemy in order to have something external that they can tell their people they're defending them against. And during the Cold War, of course, we had the Soviet Union as the enemy. Well, when the Soviet Union collapsed, um, uh, there was a need for somebody else to take that place. And given the strategic importance of Iran, to the United States, and given the rocky sort of political history, two things need to be said about it. One is that there are definitely two kinds of relationships to Iran that I perceive. One is the demonizing of the country, um, that Iran will not play the game that I think Washington and Langley would like it to play. It is increasingly independent. In the time period that I cover in the book, when the Reagan administration came into power, they were, as I've described, very close to the Ayatollah Khomeini. Mm. They supported that regime. They armed it to the hilt. And in the Iran-Iraq war, they were tilting towards Iran for most of it, although they publicly tilted more towards Iraq. Um, But there's a large contingent of people in Iran that are pro-U.S. in the same way that in other countries there is a layer of the uh, political elite who think still think that America is the, the country that will be their friend, their commercial ally, and so on. So there's a, that elite in Iran as well. Um, I support Iran's independence, and I think the less they have to do with America, the better off they will be, because I don't think the history would indicate that there's anything good in store if they are closely aligned with the United States. Because of its geopolitical situation, it's always going to be a target of the U.S., of any imperial power. And so there are going to be people who want to assist that. But given what I know about two of the people who surfaced in 2009 during the Green Movement, I think 
I'm justified in saying that that was a hoax. That was a U.S. effort to get back into Iran in a major way. Mir Hussein Mousavi was one of the ministers in charge during a particularly hideous period in Iran's history, which coincided with the Reagan administration mm-hmm. and with two massive killing sprees, uh, massacres that occurred in 1981-82 and again in 88-89, killing thousands of people. And those people were liberals. They were pro-Democrats. They were leftists. And so for Mir Hussein Mousavi to come up in 1970, in 2009 and call himself a Democrat was really insulting, mm. not to mention fictional. Mm. And the other character who showed up with him, Meti Karubi, is a Republican uh, ally. He worked with the Reagan-Bush people in 1981 to sabotage Carter. He was a dealer on the uh, weapons deals with between Carter and uh, between Bush Reagan and the Ayatollahs. Mm. So he's also no friend of democracy in Iran. So there's still a tremendous amount of game playing going on. And I think what they're struggling for, you know, in demonizing someone like Ahmadinejad, you know, his statements about Israel have been distorted so far. People don't know what he said. They haven't a clue. And since most people who read the New York Times don't speak Farsi, they don't have any idea what he said about Israel. Um, So the demonizing has been done cheaply. It's been done with a lot of old hallmarks of name-calling, and I think Argo contributes to that by showing, in contrast to the quiet woman who works at the embassy, you know, the Canadian ambassador's home, um, they show crowd scenes repeatedly where the impression is given that Iranians could not possibly hold a rational conversation. All they do is yell and scream all day. And there's a comment made by uh, Tony Mendez's boss in the CIA corridors to the effect that, um, you know, these people are uh, waiting for beheadings in the square. There were no beheadings in Tehran, even of the Shah's people. Some of them were, yes, executed. But um, there also there were comments um, about... Um, uh, if 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 Peter Jennings was caught, if the journalists who had been given visas in Tehran were caught with false visas, they would be executed or Peter Jennings' head on a platter. Well, it's precisely the theme of Argo that Tony Mendez can create fake aden- uh, credentials for anyone. Mm-hmm. So all of these were elements of demonizing people that are in no way behaving the way they showed them. In the bazaar scene where the, the six are taken into the bazaar, it's inconceivable that an Iranian man would come up to a, a woman, Iranian or otherwise, and shake his fist in her face. Mm. No Iranian I ever met confused the American people with the government. Mm. And the people in the bazaar had no way of knowing in that scene that these six were from the U.S. government. Had they known that, they might have had a thing or two to say. But in fact, they didn't know that. To them, they were just tourists. And anyone in the bazaar would have been delighted to have people shopping in the in the bazaar, particularly during that period. They would have welcomed them. Um, they are extremely polite as a culture, almost to the point of being painfully so. It's just a, a scene that is again designed to show Iranians as uncouth, uncultured, rude, aggressive, ready to assault Americans at the drop of a hat. Mm-hmm. And it's false. Mm-hmm. Let's say a listener has seen Argo, and, and, but they read your book and they balance things out in their mind that way. But they, at that point, want to 
find out about Iran for themselves. They perhaps want to go there or engage with the culture. What's, what's something you would tell them to help them to better prepare them to understand Iran? Uh, when they've, they've, they've seen the movie, but then they've read your book, and then they've learned more, what, what might help them to know? Um, Iranians are extremely congenial, polite people. Their mm-hmm. culture is saturated with a traditional um, uh, sort of honoring of guests. Mm-hmm. And it comes from thousands of years being on the Silk Road, the sort of caravan uh, culture, where people would stop at someone's home and expect to be fed, and they would willingly feed a guest who stopped on their way traveling through um, that's part of the culture. Secondly, I think it's important to listen to people from other cultures. And perhaps the reason I learned so much was that even though I asked a lot of questions, I generally shut up and listened, um, unlike what I'm doing here. <laughs> You've got things to say, and there's important points to make here. Um, but, you know, just hear them. Listen. Ask them what their views are. Ask to meet their families. Um, ask to be shown around the city. Mm-hmm. Ask, um, you know, where are the shanty towns? Show us the the mosque. Show us the bazaar. Tell us about Islam. Tell us about your culture, and then listen. Mm-hmm. I've been speaking here in the Los Angeles Review of Books headquarters with Margot Lachlan White, author of Waking Up in Tehran: The Untold Story of the Iranian Revolution, which publishes June first. So, if you're listening before June first, you can still look up. There's a Facebook page for this book, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. So, they, do they just search on Facebook for Waking Up in Tehran? Yes. Mm-hmm. So you can do that, listeners. Or if you're listening after June first, great. The book is available. Margot, thanks so much. Thank you very much. Enjoyed being here. This has been the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. I've been Colin Marshall. You can find much more at lareviewofbooks.org. Thanks.